Today, I'll be interviewing Danny Berge, who I previously worked with at the Institute for Systems Biology, and who is now a full-time biological illustrator. Um, remind me the name of the firm you work with. I work at Cognition Studio um, in Seattle. In Seattle. Yeah. So she's had kind of an interesting uh, career path in the fact that she's been able to unite her two loves of science <laughs> and art um, into an awesome job. And hopefully a little later we can take a peek at some of your work online. Um, but yeah, so uh, Danny, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you chose what you are doing now and how you kind of decided to go that route? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so I grew up in South Dakota um, in Spearfish, a little town in the Black Hills, and grew up with a mom that was an artist um, when she was younger, and she doesn't do that for her career, but you know, she's always been very artistic. Um, we always drew around the house and had drawings everywhere. Um, and then my dad is a molecular biology professor. So I kind of grew up with both of those things, you know, in my life. Um, and in high school, I took lots of art classes and lots of science and math. And, you know, you got to a point where you're thinking about college and thinking, which direction do you go? Do you go into art or do you go into science? And at that point um, in my life, it was kind of felt like you could do one or the other and you had to shut the other one down a little bit. So um, I had started really getting into physics and math and decided that I would kind of pursue more of the science field um, in college. So I actually started in engineering um, at Montana State University. Um, and about a semester in, I realized that it wasn't quite, you know, what I thought it was gonna be. Um, it wasn't as, I guess, creative and artistic at that point. Um, and, you know, after one semester in, so uh, I had sort of thinking about different career paths or different uh, majors that I could potentially do. And my mom had given me a book, I think over Christmas break, um, I should try to find the name of it, but it was about brain plasticity. And I had never really learned anything about the brain. And I was reading this book and was just like, so intrigued by this whole new field that I didn't even really know existed at the time. Um, and so after that, I went back to uh, Montana State, my uh, spring semester and found a new department there called cell biology and neuroscience and ended up switching into that, um, which was a really, really cool department there. Um, they had a lot of neuroscientists and um, some MDs that were working there and doing research now too. So I got to kind of explore um, some of the medical school or pre-medical school classes and then also some really um, high level neuroscience classes with some um, cognitive neuroscience professors there. And it was just really interesting. Um, at the same time, I was taking a lot of math classes as well. So definitely interested in, you know, combining math and biology. And while I was learning about all that stuff, I had art kind of on the back burner. Um, in my senior year, I started taking figure drawing classes. Like I think it was the figure drawing guild um, at Montana State that I started taking part in, um, which was really fun. I sort of, you know, um, revamped that love for art a little bit. Um, oh no, Jocelyn, I think you're frozen. Oh no, Am all I? good. Okay. No, we're all good now. Okay. Um, but yeah, then after that, um, I was still really interested in math and bio, and that's about the time that we met. Um, I moved out to Seattle and started working at the Institute for Systems Biology and really wanted to learn about how to combine, you know, mathematics and biology. Um, and I was there for almost two years. And during that time, I found out 
about the field of medical illustration, which I had no idea existed up until that point. Um, and I actually interviewed, did an informational interview with um, who is now my boss, David Ellert at Cognition Studio. And his background and another um, employee of his, Anessa, they had just very similar stories in that they had kind of thought that art and science were very different and you kind of had to do one or the other and shut the other one down. And then they realized, you know, they soon realized that there's this field that kind of pulls both of them together. Um, so that was really inspiring. And um, as you know, I started taking a bunch of figure drawing classes and kind of building up a portfolio. Um, and I found out that there were four schools that you could apply to for a master's. Um, and one of them was the University of Illinois at Chicago, which is where I ended up going. Um, they were a little bit more focused on cell and molecular biology and a little more advanced in the animation fields. Um, and of course, all the schools do all of that, but that one really stood out to me. So I ended up going there and I trained more in illustration, took more anatomical classes, anatomical visualization classes and cell biology, neuroscience, you know, lots of science classes, and then also learned about storytelling, um, visual storytelling. So um, visual learning and visual thinking and layout and design and kind of things like that. And the second year we took a lot of classes that sort of pulled all of those things together um, so that you can really be effective in, in telling science stories essentially. Um, so yeah, and then after that, I graduated in 2019 um, with my master's of science from the University of Illinois at Chicago and soon moved to Seattle, where I now work at Cognition Studio. And I've been there a little bit over a year now, I'm working on um, a lot of, we work with a lot of biotech and biopharma companies and yeah, do a lot of science storytelling for them. So it's really fun so far, but yeah. That's awesome. And, and so your main clientele is biotech, biopharma. Is there, do you have academic um, people that you work for as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, especially in Seattle, it's such a science-minded community. And so we, we do work with academics um, a lot, definitely more so in the biotech and biopharma space. But I really personally enjoy working with scientists um, and really being able to like, dig deep into the science with them and think about their science in a new way that maybe even they haven't really considered. Um, so that's really, really fun for me. I'd like to continue doing that in the future, um, especially, you know, like I said, working with academics more. Are there any projects you've done recently that, that you can talk about that something you were really excited about um, working on? Yeah, um, I'm not sure you know how much I really can tell you, but um, there's one that is pub in the public domain right now. Um, we worked with the University of Washington is, and I'll have to send it to you after this, but we did a whole series with him um, that is you know public domain. It's kind of got the mechanism of action of remdesivir and then some background information about, you know, the RNA polymerase that remdesivir, you know, impacts. So that was, that was really cool. Um, it was, the audience was higher level too. It was for virologists. Mm -hmm. So we got to, you know, really dig into the structural biology um, of the target of remdesivir's target. And then, mm -hmm. you know, of course, digging into the MOA was really high level science, um, but it was, yeah, it was really fun. The MOA? What? Mechanism of action. Ah, okay. Is yeah, that something so that, like, is it on a website? Could you pull it up for us just to take a look at it? Yeah, let me see if I can find it. I want to get into to COVID as well, because you were, um, you, you were working on a COVID-related project, like, before it was even really a thing here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, actually, I, I got coffee one day, like, uh, it was, like, in February or something, and... 
it, you know, things hadn't shut down yet and we were, we were kind of chatting about it. So, um, yeah, definitely. Be, be yeah, sure. I can actually pull that up. We have a whole case study. Oh, yeah. um, sorry, I interrupt. There we go. You see it now? Nice. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so this is a case study that our company put together. Um, I worked on building the molecular structures initial, you know, early on, which of course now there's tons and tons of papers that are um, a little bit more recent, more updated structural data, but this was, you know, obviously done, I think it says here, first published February 13th. So we were working on this wow. at the end of January and beginning of February. And we put this whole thing together and we it's updated weekly um, with new information and new data. Um, but yeah, these of course are the, the spike protein that you see everywhere, um, the different subunits, some background information. And then here's the poster, and I'll come back to that in a second, but we can kind of go through the rest of this first. So can you tell us how you how you do these structures? Like what software you use and how, I yeah. mean, they're just gorgeous. Like I love the detail and um, the fact that, I mean, from what I can tell, it looks very um, similar to what we would think of as like a protein structure, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so these are actually derived from um, what are called uh, protein data bank files or PDB files, which I think that you're familiar with. Um, but there's a whole website. You can go to the PDB and search for really any protein. Um, and there's different entries that, uh, you know, crisp, um, crystal structures and other structural biology techniques, they upload these what are called coordinate data files or PDB files. And so you can actually get really, really high resolution and um, multi-layered protein information on these. So you have the ribbon structure, you have the surface structure, there's you know lots of different types of representations that you can use. Um, and you can pull these into lots of different programs, but the one that I usually use is called BMD. It's Visual Molecular Dynamics, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then there's also a program that's called EPMV. Um, I think, uh, I'm not sure what E stands for, but it's Python Molecular Viewer. And there's a plugin um, that we use frequently in our animation program or the software that we, or the platform, which is called Cinema 4D. So you can actually directly pull them into an animation program like uh, C4D, which is really, really helpful. And then, you know, customize it from there. You can light things in there and apply different materials. Um, you just have a lot of freedom um, with those PDB files. But it's nice because they're, you know, they're the direct files from the structural biology experiments. So they're really, really accurate. Um, and of course, like I said, there's, since we made this, there's been even more uh, research that's been put out about these spike proteins and the membrane proteins and lots of different internal or intravirion proteins that have been published since then. Um, but these are from early on and hopefully, you know, in the next month or two, I get, I can spend some time updating the structures so they're as accurate as, as possible, but yeah, yeah, that's really neat. So yeah, so can you talk a little bit about how COVID, I mean, because you, you really did kind of, it was on your radar before, you know, a lot of people here were talking about it. Um, can you talk about how it's kind of impacted your year and your work and your life and um, maybe thoughts on kind of where we're at today compared to, you know, six months ago? Right, yeah, definitely. 
uh, yeah, like you said, we were kind of thinking about it in January and definitely keeping it on the radar. Um, Cognition had done a similar case study with the Zika virus when, when that was happening. And so we were, we were thinking this might be an opportunity to get some information out there, visual information that people can digest you know, rather quickly. And so we started building this case study up and then you know, soon enough, a lot of our clients were working on you know, either vaccines or just background research for a lot of, a lot of the COVID related uh, treatments. So we're seeing it in our daily work just all the time. It's ramped up an enormous amount. Um, you know, almost all, all of the projects that I'm working on now are related to COVID, whether they're 2D illustration, 3D um, visualizations, animation, you know, static media, kind of all across the board. But um, it's been a really unique opportunity to be, you know, a medical illustrator right now and be able to kind of keep up with the, all of the findings of this, um, you know, this pandemic in a really interesting way. And um, if you've seen, you know, the, the spiky blob that's kind of everywhere, that red one that's, I think you saw on news outlets and it came from the CDC and a, a medical illustrator named Alyssa Eckert actually created that. So there's just a lot of like, you know, a lot of medical illustrators are creating visuals for that um, right now, which is really, really cool to see. Yeah. But, yeah. It must be kind of powerful to be somebody who can, you know, provide this visual, um, you know, information to people during this time, because I think everybody's wanting to, um, you know, understand it in a deeper way and kind of, um, I think, I think understanding leads to a reduction in fear, right? So, yeah. um, can you talk about that at all? And, and ha like, has it changed how you see yourself? Um, from like your role in society, I guess? No, that's a great question. I, I definitely have reflected on that question a lot. Like, you know, all of the visuals that you see out there, there's tons of them right now and patient education. Um, like I was saying earlier, we're, we created that whole PowerPoint series for virologists to teach and to learn about remdesivir. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, um, but it's also a big responsibility, I think, to take on as medical illustrators because uh, you know people are very visual learners, and so if you put something out there that gets blown up and gets used, you know, on news outlets and all over the place, you want to make sure that it's as accurate as possible and not biased in any way, um, derived from real data, um, things like that. So it's a big responsibility, but it's definitely you know, in my first year of being a medical illustrator, it's been really, really fascinating to see the impacts that one person can have, um, you know, and then you think about the teams, the companies, and then also just the whole field of medical illustration, helping to convey information out there to the pu general public. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting. Yeah. Is there, you know, because I've heard you talk about wanting it to be as accurate as possible. And I, I don't know if I'm just remembering this or, you know, you, you mentioned it in the past, but um, that, you know, you want to work with people that care about that, right? Like the heart organs on the right, the correct side of the body and things like that. Um, is there is there a spectrum in that uh, kind of integrity within medical illustration? Or would you say that most people strive for that? Yeah, no, that's a good question too. I think if you think about illustrations or depictions of anything scientific, you can go from 
abstract to highly, you know, photorealistic. And there's this whole spectrum and choosing which side of that and where you fall with a certain visualization is a really, really important question that we ask ourselves as medical illustrators as we're getting started on a project. Um, if you think about creating visualization for patient education, for example, you have more flexibility to go on more of that maybe abstract side. Um, there's some information that maybe the patient doesn't really need to know that it would cause more visual noise um, for them to try to digest that. And it's easier for them to digest if you can just cut that out and maybe abstract it or simplify it in a way that you're really teaching them, you know, the main takeaway point. Um, but then versus, you know, on the other side of that, you have um, highly educated research scientists or, you know, experts in whatever field where if they look at an illustration and they notice that those key details are missing, they're going to, they're going to um, doubt the, you know, the integrity of the author or, you know, whatever that illustration is associated with. So you have to be really careful about that. Um, and I, I think it's really important. I personally really like to do a little bit higher level visualizations. I think, you know, with my background in, in science, especially, I definitely fall more on the side of working for um, working on projects where the audience is a higher level, um, either scientist, physician, or even like higher level medical students, for example. Um, but I still enjoy trying to kind of see how much accuracy you can put into that middle ground as well, um, but not create too much visual noise that the audience gets distracted or gets confused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Are there a lot of studios like Cognition or would you say that most medical illustrators are working freelance? Um, can yeah. you speak to that at all? Yeah, yeah definitely. There's a number of, um, of studios like Cognition, um, but most of them are teams full of, you know, just medical illustrators, for example. Um, Cognition is really unique in that we have our science storytelling team, which is built of medical illustrators um, that have gone through the, you know, the, the accredited master's programs um, and have master, master's degrees. And many of them are, are CMIs, which is certified medical illustrators. Um, we also have a design team, which is really cool because we work, get to work back and forth with designers that are formally trained in visual design, information design, um, strategy, you know, it's a whole nother field in itself. And I think being able to create a company, it was really, I think it was just a really great idea. Um, the owners of the company of Cognition are Dave Ellert and Christine Johnson, and they both, they're kind of on both sides of those um, design field and then medical illustration. And those two things really feed off each other. And by using them together, I think you can have more impactful visualizations and, um, you know, we create a lot of websites. And so we have a lot of visual designers and UI UX designers that can help um, the science storytelling be, be again, more impactful. But, Who are you usually yeah. building websites for companies? Yeah, a lot of biotech, um, like I said, biopharma companies. Um, yeah, so it's really fun because a lot of times we'll get to come up with a certain style for them, um, mm -hmm. for their visualizations, color schemes, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, it's really fun kind of seeing it from, from the start where they just have, you know, their PowerPoint visuals that they're, mm -hmm. you know, pitching and then bringing that into a really um, targeted style that blends with their vision of the company. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really fun to develop the graphics for, for a new 
company or a new website. Yeah. yeah. I just saw um, a new company that Jennifer Dowden has started or helped start um, oh, co-found yeah. Scribe Therapeutics and they have a pretty cool website. <laughs> nice. I'll have to <laughs> check it out. Had, definitely had website envy. I think we're still working on our website for uh for tune so yeah gotta get that up there but yeah definitely yeah because they're pretty new right it's mm -hmm. it's a startup yeah yeah they i think they started talking about it um maybe last year and then um i forget when when they first got going um i think it was like right before covid hit um but yeah we're up to like 16 people now Nice. And yeah. uh, uh, five people here in Seattle, and then we have, um, you know, a handful in uh, North Carolina. So. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Everyone's so working, working remotely. <laughs> yeah, you're working in Montana now. Is that right? Yeah. So that was another piece of your question earlier. Um, you know, I was living in a little one-bedroom apartment in Seattle, and. Uh, my partner Ben and I were both working from home and we had just gotten a dog so it was a little bit too much to all work from home in a tiny little apartment um, but we're living out here in Montana I went to school in Bozeman and Ben's family lives out here in Helena so we're staying with them and um, you know Addie our dog has like a big backyard to play in and she's been able to socialize with other dogs more easily here and oh, yeah. yeah it's been great yeah that's awesome and do you think you'll be back in Seattle at some point like working in the office again yeah I think so um I definitely really like the office environment just being able to collaborate with people you know walk around and the studio and you know cognition studio in Seattle the the workplace is really beautiful so I definitely miss having like nice modern workplace to to go to every day um but yeah I think we'll probably move back there early next year um I'm not sure when the office is going to open I don't think anyone really knows you know, what's going to happen for their workplaces, you know, in the next few months, but it would be nice to, to start going back in pretty soon. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's been interesting living in Seattle and then, you know, done a bit of traveling, spent some time in a few different places, and I feel like generally speaking, Seattle has been um, not hit quite as hard with COVID as some of the other places. Um, yeah. I know our case rate recently started going back up, but I think it's been relatively steady for a while now and we're relatively open, like restaurants and, um, you know, people have gone back to work and in a lot of places. So, um, right. yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like there's a couple reasons that Seattle has done, you know, relatively well. Um, the first one I think is, Seattle is like a big tech center, right? So there's a lot of like Amazon and Facebook, Like there's a lot of people that are already working on their computers. And so the transition to work from home was probably easier than um, maybe some other smaller, small, uh, smaller cities um, that are not as tech focused, I guess. Um, and then the second piece is I think generally people in Seattle really understand the, um, the weight of COVID and they, you know, they understand that working from home and social distancing and doing all those preventative me measures can really, you know, help us move through this. Um, I think yeah. they have a little bit more trust and faith for, for the, that kind of a, a mindset. So I think those two things together have been, you know, helpful in 
keeping Seattle on the lower end of the big cities, at least. Yeah, that and we're really antisocial, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So like the, the Seattle freeze, um, you know, benefit. I was, uh, I was like reading in bed on Friday night and just thinking about how nice it is that like, I know. that's like a normal thing now, you know? Yeah, you don't have to feel um, bad about staying in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it'll be great hopefully when you can come back and get in the office and mm -hmm. um, I definitely agree like since we're in the launch lab space which is like an incubator for biotech startups um, and we have you know our own offices and then the companies have their own like tissue culture suites and everything right. um, but even just like going into work and um, you know seeing my coworkers and like I don't know. It's just nice to feel normal in some way. Yeah, like and connected, and yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I do miss that piece of it, but. So I wanted to also um, bring up the fact that you were one of the first people to get me into podcasts. Really? Um, yeah, so when we, were, we, we were driving out to Montana for um the yearly retreat at Lee Hood's ranch um and you know it's a pretty long drive to get out there and yeah. um how many of those retreats did you go to were you just at one I think I just one I think two. I just went to one of the Montana retreats I think I went to two okay. of the smaller smaller ones but yeah okay. yeah and so you you asked me if I liked podcasts, and I remember saying, like, I'm not a podcast girl. I remember I that now that you bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't gotten into podcasts yet, and um, you put on, you, I remember at the time, you really liked Radio Lab, and you put on this Invisibilia podcast um, that talked, I want to say it was the one that talks about, like, emotions and how, yeah, that one. I do like, remember it, yeah. That whole series was really interesting. I, I think I, I think it was the second season of Invisibilia. Yeah. And maybe we started listening to you know the first or second episode, but I do remember. Yeah. yeah. And I, I like that podcast has stayed with me. I've played it for multiple people actually, and I find okay. that one really interesting because it it talks about like how kind of how our brains um, process emotions and the fact that like you know, in English, we have, like, certain emotions, and in other languages, there's, like, not even a word for some of our emotions. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it was, it was super fascinating. Um, it's called Shortwave. It's, like, a little science podcast, so they have different um, topics, like, every week or whenever they publish it, and they kind of dive into them and explain them on a level that, you know, if you know nothing about it, you can kind of come up to speed. But I listen to that one every once in a while, and it's kind of fun. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I wanted to ask you, since this was kind of recent news with um, Jennifer Doudna winning the Nobel, I was curious, um, how, like, what that was like for you. Were you excited about the news, and maybe just share? Yeah. Yeah, and I think I I don't know as much about her as I know that you have, you know. I think worked with her before or you've you know definitely have a lot more knowledge about her background but I was super excited to see that I know there's you know been some 
controversies back and forth about who gets credit for CRISPR. And I think either way, it's such an incredible, um, you know, idea that is just groundbreaking. And so seeing, seeing her get awarded for that was just, yeah, amazing. I was really happy to see it. Yeah, me too. I, that was like such a happy day. I think yeah. I was like super excited and I, I haven't worked with her, but Fyodor Ernov, my, one of my mentors works with her now. And oh, so, nice. um, so yeah, it was just, I think exciting after, you know, seeing so many men win all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and to have her recognized in that way was pretty cool. Yeah, that was great. Um, there was another question I wanted to ask. Oh, so have you, like, during your career, have you have you met any scientists like that that you were kind of, like, starstruck about meeting? Or have there been any, like, people you follow that you're, you're always, like, keeping an eye out for their work? Yeah, um, well, the... The scientist that I worked with on my master's project, um, he's a um, epidemiology researcher at uh, Northwestern. Ali Shalatafard is his name. I don't know if you've run across any of his science before, um, but he is like really well known um, for, it's called the compass um, protein and the um, uh, super elongation complex, which is like a really big um, regulatory complex in gene transcription. and. So I ended up doing my my master's thesis on that and did an animation about how that works and the whole mechanism of all, there's like, I don't know, 20 different proteins that have to come together and bind in certain ways. Um, but working with him was really cool. He's the new director of this um, Simpson Query Center for Epigenetics at Northwestern University. Um, and so they had just been working on building this brand new center, um, you know, doing all the branding and everything for that. And um, so we worked on, we worked on this animation with him while that was all in progress and, um, you know, he's the director, so he's kind of the face of this new center and it was pretty cool to see, see that, you know, on his webpage and everything. Um, awesome. But yeah, um, so then also when I was at ISB, um, I don't know even if you remember this at all, but um, Stuart Kaufman, who is like associated with ISB or is an affiliate scientist mm -hmm. there. Um, I had one of his books on my desk that I love and um, I had I think I was rereading it and uh, uh, Sui Huang came by and he was like you know he works at ISP right I was like oh my god really and so then like a few months later he actually brought him by my desk and um, I got to meet him I was definitely starstruck <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. It was kind of a funny, yeah, it was kind of fun. I feel like I remember him giving a seminar. Can you yep. tell us a little bit about what he works on? Yeah, so his background is on complexity theory. So he does a lot with like string theories and it's a really cool, you know, mixing between mathematics and biology. I think he's, I think he's an evolutionary biologist um, in his training. And so he talked a little bit about that um, and his book just goes into, um, this book that I was reading talks about the emergence of it, it really just emergence. So like super complex chaotic systems and how, you know, with all of that chaos, you somehow end up with things that are very ordered, um, you know, thinking about evolution or just, you know, anything. I think he talks about ants, you know, as kind of an interesting concept as well. Um, but just 
building order or you know order emerging from extreme chaos and kind of the mathematics behind it so it was cool to meet him for sure yeah what what does he say about ants I think he studies like you know they have um ants themselves are very altruistic and um so he talks about they all have kind of their own directions and um they come together to form these like crazy colonies that are capable of doing like incredible things. Um, so again, chaos, each of them is their own indi individual, you know, organism, but as a group together, they can do something that's like more than the sum of their parts. Um, right. Yeah. I heard recently that they can form like platoons, like rafts. Oh, and oh, I have heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. That is cool telling me about that the other day and I just find that so fascinating that it's almost like um I don't know I find some of the like multicellular systems where they're like individual organ like individual single cell organisms that then right. like come together to do something it's so fascinating right and I don't I don't know much about this but I think biofilms are are similar in that way in terms of like bacterial um, you know, individual bacteria, but together they form these like really elaborate structures called biofilms. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know too much about it, but yeah, it's kind yeah. of a similar concept. Um, and then E.O. Wilson is another, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's another, um, I think again, another evolutionary biologist um, that he really studies ants and this you know, idea of order and just the things that they're capable of doing as a colony. Um, but he has a book called The Meaning of Human Existence, which is a really interesting read and kind of talks about a lot of these concepts of like the emergence of different features um, out of, you know, hundreds of individual organisms. And yeah, it's a good read. I think the end of it is, check that out. yeah, yeah, it's a good one. You gave me a book um, a couple of years ago that I was just talking about the other day, Proust was a neuroscientist yeah is the title and it's a really cool book because it kind of gets into different artists and writers who describe biological phenomena that we like before we even had a real understanding of some of these systems like how the brain connects with the body and things like that right um and I think it, it's kind of similar in a way um, to, you know, some of these studies you're talking about with complexity and like tying theory to biology, which I think in my head really pushes like the limits of, you know, it pushes the limits of like what the data can show us, right? Mm -hmm. But it also makes a lot of sense in a way, like I think. There's no, yeah. so much there, right, that, like, we're still trying to comprehend because we don't necessarily have all of the ways to comprehend it or measure it, but... Right, yeah, or you don't even really know what the outcome could possibly be, like, we're not able to fathom it, so it's hard to design experiments, I think, to solve that type of a problem, especially when you think about, like, I think neuroscience is one example that there's just all of these phenomenon that happen and it's hard to really understand how they happen because we don't 
we don't grasp that middle level to even design experiments to to get there quite yet. Um, but yeah, I, I love that book. I think it's a really interesting book that kind of brings together art and science in a nice way. Um, I think there was one chapter on Cezanne, the, the abstract impressionist painter, um, and how he pushed the limits of what the human, you know, the human eye could understand with just simple brush strokes. And he would go more and more abstract until, you know, nobody would recognize it. And then he would pull it back just one hair. And I thought that was a really, really cool chapter. Yeah, yeah I love that book. So interesting. And I think something that we always kind of connected on was that, you know, we both were interested in art and science. And um, I like to say that, you know, they're, they're like two sides of the same coin in a way, because they're both methods that we as humans use to understand the world around us. Um, mm. They have quite different approaches, maybe, but, um, you know, I think it's, um, you know, kind of a natural instinct for us to want to understand our world and how it works. And, um, you know, I think yeah. they're both, both great modalities for that, so. Right, um, and the whole process of experimenting, you know, when you're designing a medical illustration, you have to go through a whole series of, you know, concept sketches and, you know, running it through your peers to see if things are connecting. And there's that whole trial and error process, which I really enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I, I was teaching a, a Zoom class to a science class to kids um, at one point, and I was trying to kind of sum up like what it you know what it takes to be a scientist and I think mm -hmm. um something Theodore always used to say to me was do the experiment and I think that's like it's it's a, such a good motto for like science but also life you know in the sense of like I don't know if I'm gonna like this thing you know do the experiment like see how it goes test it out and um yeah I think it's it's such a fun process to like work with other people on those types of problems right and like yeah get get feedback so yeah definitely and there's so much creativity like you said involved in science like you have to have a creative mind to come up with the right experiments and to think out of the box otherwise you're not pushing the field forward at all um, and that of course translates into into art as well um, mm -hmm. but yeah there's a ton of similarities I think between yeah, the two definitely. yeah the pushing the boundaries thing I, I totally agree. Um, so I'm curious, are you on Twitter? Yes. Did you see Nate Silver's uh, tweet the other day that got like a ton of response and backlash about it was something like, um, people aren't gonna like me saying this, but I think after you get a PhD, you become 10 times harder to convince that you're wrong. <laughs> That's so interesting. I, curious, I didn't see that. Curious your take on that. <laughs> that is so interesting. I think that got like over fifty thousand likes and like hundreds <laughs> of retweeting. I can kind of see that being true. Maybe like your whole PhD, or you're being trained to think like a scientist, and you know you're being questioned whether you're doing the right experiment or not. And by the time you're done, you're probably like. I know how to do all of this and yeah 
you don't want to be questioned quite as much about whether you're right or wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I maybe. I would hope not, but I could see how yeah. maybe that's a trend. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But also I think PhDs teach you to, I mean, the purpose is to teach you to think strategically and to question things. So yeah. I would hope that at the end of it, you're more open-minded and realize the limits of what you know and mm-hmm. what your role is in trying to trying to uncover different different things about your field yeah yeah I would say that's kind of for most of us it was like humbling you you get to this realization of like I know nothing and we right. know nothing and like <laughs> you know we've just barely scratched the surface on a lot of things um but yeah I think as well part of you know, your dissertation is supposed to be generating new data or research and answering questions that haven't been answered before, which is a huge challenge, right? Because you have to have an understanding of like what's out there and then you have to figure out how you're going to push the boundaries and like ask important questions that haven't been asked. So yeah, no, definitely. Um, this is kind of related, but it reminded me of um, a class I took in college. Um, I had a professor named Charlie Gray. He does cognitive neuroscience research. And I had taken like his, you know, neuroscience and mental illness class and his cognitive neuroscience class. And like at the end of, you know, this whole series, he like ended the whole semester by saying like, okay, now you know all of these things. And he's like, but just remember, like if you're going to go into neuroscience, like we still don't even know how you can do this. Like, we have no idea (laughs) how you can just decide to move your finger. Like, it's just crazy. Um, And of course, we know some of the mechanisms of it, but like at a deeper, you know, theoretical level, it's like, it's interesting to think about. There's just all these Mm -hmm. unanswered questions when you kind of take a step back and think about things in the big picture. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of those is that, and I don't know if this is still true. Like, I I think I heard this like 10 years ago or something, but um our ability to like if we're in a crowded room and multiple people are talking our ability to like focus on the sound coming from the person we're talking to like we don't get how that works yeah that's so incredible how (laughs) (laughs) and like you know people think that robots or ai is going to take over the world Uh, i don't know yeah maybe you can comment on like the singularity and like since you have worked in the neuroscience field like what are your thoughts on that I, you know, I just feel like I always have more to read about this subject. Like, I don't, I don't have any strong opinions on it, but I do think, um, I was listening to a podcast, another podcast, um, by the Deep Mind uh, group. They're, I think they're based out of London, maybe, but they have a whole podcast on AI, and they were talking about the ability of AI to be really, you know, it's really successful in, Um, situations where things are like a game so they're really good at like go for example and you can train an AI to solve this incredibly complicated game but if you think about it there's like rules and there are things that they can be trained on Um, and then you know they were bringing up how do you train an AI to know that when you're going home from work tomorrow morning you're going to want some orange juice And so maybe I should stop by the grocery store on my way home from work to get some orange juice for tomorrow morning. Like that kind of a thing where it's not like a game with rules is incredibly difficult to train um, AI, you know, agents on. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of right now where where the field is really digging um, 
digging into because they're really trying to understand how you can you can train an AI to do those types of complicated things rather than just games with with a set rule, for example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so yeah, interesting. It's all interesting. I know they a paper came out. I think it was last year on um, you know training AI to play poker. And they actually got, like, a bunch of the top poker players um, in the world to play with it. And um, I don't think it it didn't, like, beat them, you know? Like, it did okay. I don't remember the exact stats, but it was – when I read the paper, I felt like they were, like, overreaching a little bit with their claims of, like, how good it was, you know? Right. Um, And – you know, I think that's an interesting example of, like, a game with rules, but then there's this, like, human component, right, of, like, reading right. other people in the game and uh, reading how they make decisions and, um, I don't know, it's a yeah really fascinating area of AI, I think. Um, I totally agree, yeah. And the whole creativity aspect of it, especially with Go, um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary about about that um, that matchup, but you, you should see it if you if you haven't. But there was, um, I think, the final match in Go, the the AI, or maybe it was the it was the penultimate match, but um, the the AI had a, they called it a creative move, like they were like blown away because this move was like they had never seen it in a game of Go before, so it hadn't really been trained on. You know this one certain move to make but it was really? like cre- it showed like creativity it was what they were talking about and they were just wow. like all blown away and it, I think it won that match um and then it, of course it won you know the whole series but yeah it was an interesting point I think in the documentary where you're like wow you know creativity is a whole nother thing like what is creativity and yeah. how is it you know can you say an AI is creative yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know much about it but it's an interesting question. What a, what a like watershed moment for AI. I remember that like the paper and it just, you know, making a big splash in the news. And I imagine yeah. the people who worked on it, that being like, you know, one of those breakthroughs, like you're just so excited to like see this thing that you built working. Right, um, right. Have you had any moments like that in your own work where you're like, oh my gosh, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I I think yeah I know like major moments quite yet I think I'm still pretty early in my career and learning what I what I like to do and what I'm good at but um I guess I won an award um for my master's animation last year which was probably the biggest accomplishment so far at least in medical illustration for me um I won an award of excellence at our big AMI annual conference so it was kind of nice to be recognized and I think the amount of work that went into that, it was, it was like, okay, <laughs> this, this was worth it. You know, it was recognized and yeah. So that was great. That's awesome. Congrats. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got an award of excellence for my master's and then um, I had an award of merit for another animation that I did in grad school as well. And of course these were in the student category, but it was still, it was a good, it was a, you know, good encouragement that, I'm on, you know, the right path and I definitely love animation. So it's kind of nice to, to know that people are recognizing you for your work. Yeah. 
Are there any animators or illustrators that you like follow for, for inspiration? Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, you know, the medical animation field is, is growing really substantially. So there's a lot of people that are diving into that. Um, Vessel Studios is a really great animation studio that I follow and then also Newt Studios. Um, their work is really beautiful and, and great. Um, and then I try to follow a lot of like cinematic animators as well, just to try to pull, you know, camera moves or eff visual effects from people outside of the medical animation industry, just to kind of add a, a new spin and you know, elevate whatever graphics you're, you're working on. Um, but one of my favorites is Raul Marx. Um, he's an incredible animator. Um, he worked on the, the Westworld uh, title sequence. Oh, and then, wow. Yeah, and Patrick Clare, I think, um, I don't, I don't know what his position is, but I think he did like the storyboarding and the concept work for that as well. Um, and they've done a, a lot of title sequences. I think True Detective as well. Um, their company is called Anabody Studios, I believe. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, I love their work and I have them up on Vimeo like as a bookmark. I'm always oh, nice. studying, studying his work and yeah, definitely one of yeah, my favorites. People who haven't seen the Westworld title sequence it's kind of like like this white liquid is being poured to form these bodies that are very anatomical right and um, yeah spinning yeah. around and it's like it's definitely a really neat visualization there yeah and the sound design too is really I think impactful they've got the player piano I think that's what it's called yeah which is cool so it starts to play by itself um and actually you know, you know, we were just talking about AI. I was just reading that in the recent season of Westworld, they actually used AI to um, like come up with these interesting uh, scenes from previous seasons. It like pulled all of these scenes from previous seasons and came up with like these really warped views. I'm doing a bad job of describing it, but I'll send you the article later. But oh, there are these cool. images that were like informed by previous seasons and they actually mm -hmm incorporated those into the new Westworld sequence. So there's like some AI elements um, in season three title sequence, which is very fitting for, you know, the, the hosts leaving the park and going out into the real world. Yeah. Um, so it was co very cool, yeah. That show definitely really, I think more so than a lot of other shows, made me think a lot about neuroscience and like the brain and um you know it really plays with the con like reality and our perceived realities and identity and there there was so much like I remember the first season especially just talking to so many people about it and how you know how trippy it was like thinking about these things and yeah, totally. You actually got me started watching it. I remember oh, we were in I? the lab. Yeah, we were like in the wet lab and oh, okay. doing some chip seek experiment probably. And you were like, I feel like you would really like Westworld. And I was like, yeah, it actually sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. I do love it. It's a great show. There's, um, I also really like uh, the movie Ex Machina. That was like one of yeah. my favorite movies. So good. That kind of plays with the same concepts and um, you know, I love, I love that one as well. I wonder, um, it's just amazing how far, like, some of these animations have come. Yeah, no, that's such a great one, and, you know, on a different, 
aspect of that movie. There was a lot of really cool um, choices in the, the the color of the attire of the the main character. So whether he was wearing like a lighter blue plaid shirt versus I think towards the end of the movie started wearing like darker clothes. And it kind of was an interesting like, you know, um, I think the audience, you pick up on that kind of subconsciously, um, but it played into played into his yeah character development for sure. And then um, if you rewatch it, like paying attention to when they're shot in the shadows and what's in the background, like sometimes I think at the beginning of the movie, he's shot with like blue skies, mountains behind him. And then towards the end, yeah. he's shot, you know, right next to like a darker wall um, where there's no big background and yeah. Wow, yeah, that's an incredible movie. Picked up on that. <laughs> I, I was I'll reading some. Watch it again now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you rewatch it, I'll send you an article. And um, yeah, if you rewatch it, it's it's pretty fascinating. Um, what you know in c- cinematography, like how you can add those tiny little details in, and it definitely influences yeah. your perception um, of a character throughout the throughout the plot. But totally. Would you ever yeah. want to work in like film or? I doing animation for something like that I think that'd be really fun um it's not something that I'm you know striving to do right now but I I think like pulling in some more of you know cinematic um, techniques into like medical or biomedical animation is is a really important thing I think it could you know make our animations even more um you know known and impactful I think but I think it would also be fun to work in, in film, um, especially yeah. if you've seen The Mandalorian at all. And have you watched that show? No. It's a Disney Plus show, but they okay. did, <laughs> they did this whole. Sorry. It's like a Star Wars. It's a <laughs> tangent, but okay. Yeah. Disney Plus. I'm not on Disney Plus. That's like one of the ones I don't have. Um, yeah. I think. Yeah, uh, Finding Nemo is like the only. <laughs> Pixar animated movie that I like. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure if you would like The Mandalorian. It's like a Star Wars. It's like an extension on Star Wars, but they filmed oh, okay. the whole thing in but this thing know, called I The Volume. I haven't seen. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just I think I was watching like a, um, you know, behind the scenes of how they filmed The Mandalorian and just the, I don't know, they filmed it in this huge volume thing that was like, all CG and the actors were acting in this real what what looked to them like a real world like Star Wars world because all of the you know the surrounding volume was all CG created before really? they filmed the show yeah yeah oh my god how there's some really is that <laughs> I, I know that's what I that was my discussion <laughs> so are they yeah. in like the green suits and so they're or do they have like their wardrobe on yeah so it's cool they so they build the whole world before they actually film with actors. And so they have the cameras and as they move the, the CG world like adjusts. Um, so you get parallax and, you know, all of the things that you need to make it feel real. And then the actors can actually see the world. There's no green screen. They can actually see the projections wow. on this volume. So it's, it's like adding another level onto acting too, because instead of having a green screen that you have to pretend that there's this, you know, dust storm or something, they're actually seeing the dust storm. So I, I assume that it helps them in their, their acting to feel like they're really there. That's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah there's some big advances in 
in a film right now. So anyways, to answer your question, that would be fun to work on eventually. <laughs> um, okay, well, I think that's uh, kind of all the questions that I had. And I had such a great time chatting with you. And I will, um, you know, do some editing and, and send you send you a copy. Um, but thanks so yeah. much for joining the podcast. Yeah, this was really you- fun probably be pinging you for uh some help with various art things in the in the near future so yeah definitely I know this was really fun um I'm glad you are starting a podcast now it's like <laughs> your next project like My you were next saying project, yeah <laughs> yeah got done with the book and